Hey listeners, today we're doing things a bit differently and sharing a special episode from the Pushkin podcast, Talk Easy with Sam Fergoso. Every week on Talk Easy, Sam invites an activist, artist, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Today, you'll hear his new conversation with Congresswoman Cori Bush. They unpack the state of the Democratic Party, discuss Bush's powerful new memoir, The Forerunner, and so much more. I hope you enjoy their talk as much as I did. To hear more of Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, you can listen at talkeasypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by Congresswoman Cori Bush. Back in 2020, Bush made history as the first black woman elected to represent Missouri's first congressional district. In her first term, she's remained true to her campaign slogan, which was to do the most for the people who have the least, fighting to eliminate student debt, advocating for both reproductive rights and mental health programs for victims of police violence, not to mention leading a protest on the steps of the Capitol to raise awareness for a nationwide eviction moratorium. In almost all cases, Bush's policies are informed by her lived experiences, She's grappled with homelessness, crippling student loans, and the burden of having an abortion. She writes about all of this and more in her new memoir, The Forerunner, a story of pain and perseverance in America. The book is remarkably bold in its vulnerability, as she recounts her years living below the poverty line as a single mother and survivor of domestic violence. Contrary to most political memoirs, which usually offer the illusion of openness, the forerunner is genuinely candid. There is no pretense or sidestepping. The same is true in conversation with the congresswoman. Whether it's around the midterms, the state of the Democratic Party, or her childhood in St. Louis, Bush speaks from the heart. After all, in 2022, she says, who has time for anything else? And so, if you'd like to learn more about Corey after our talk, or if you want to support her bid for a second term in Congress this November, be sure to visit www.coreybush.org. That's www.coreybush.org. And now, without further ado, here is Congresswoman Corey Bush. Representative Bush, or should I say Corey? What do you prefer? People call me Congresswoman CB or Corey. If you had to do a power ranking, what's your top? If it's a power ranking, it's going to be Congresswoman, (laughs) you know. Okay. Congresswoman Bush, pleasure to meet you. Thank you. You too, Sam. It is an honor to have you here. 
We're going to talk a lot about your beautiful new book, but I figured since we're here, we have to start with the midterms. You're up for re-election to represent Missouri's first district. Yes. Now, your race, unlike many others vying for seats in Congress, is not especially close. I mean, I'm a little superstitious. I don't want to jinx it. But I think I may receive as many votes as your Republican challenger, Andrew Jones. No comment on that? Okay. <laughs> well, it's, well, you know, I am very confident that we will do just fine in the general election. Sounds exactly like a politician. I love it. <laughs> but more broadly, the midterms historically are a referendum on the party in power. And to buck that trend, Democrats across the country have narrowed their messaging ahead of November, positioning themselves as protectors of reproductive rights, and stewards of a fragile democracy. But as the media has noted, there's been very little campaigning around the issues most important to you. I'm thinking about affordable housing, voting rights, police brutality, immigration reform. And so as you seek a second term in Congress, how have you squared away that gap between what you prioritize and what the Democratic Party seems to be prioritizing. You know, November 8th is coming up, and it will be the people of Missouri's first district. It will be St. Louis who will show up to vote for me or vote for the other person. But either way, it's the people who vote. So when I'm reelected, fully reelected to this position, those are the people that I have to prioritize. And so the issues of Missouri's first district have to be first, and I have to keep pushing that message. As far as repro rights, repro freedom, repro justice, absolutely, that's a big part of my work. But there are other issues my community faces. And so, yes, I'm going to continue to push for housing. Um, we just had historic flooding in our community, and we have so many families who are currently displaced. Our affordable housing stock was, a lot of that was knocked out through this one in 1,000 year event that happened twice in a week. My community needs help. And so I'm going to continue to prioritize that. I'm one of 535 people in Congress, one of 435 in the House, which means that my work has to be to make sure that that district, that district, because nobody else speaks for that district, my district has to be prioritized and I'm the one that has to do that. So that's why I'm going to stand up for my people. <laughs> the way you stand up for them, I think about this quote where you, where you say, we can no longer push communities to the side to be able to save Democratic seats for reelection. We have to do both at the same time. You save lives and you figure out how to communicate to save seats. But do you think the Democrats may be ignoring some of these communities that have put them in positions of power in the first place. I don't know if it's ignoring or just not prioritizing them as much because, you know, making sure that the money, the investment is going to those areas where there is going to be large investment against those incumbents that are running. And I'll say this. So one thing that really, really irritates me is, you know, a Republican in Congress can say some wild thing about me, can attack me and use my name and raise millions of dollars. But if I say something about them because they did something to me, 
We don't raise that same type of money. And so folks are donating crazy to these Republicans that have these super extremist far right views. And that same thing that we don't have that big push financially happening on the Democratic side, not the same way. And so I see them pushing that, trying to get that investment there. But my point is... That doesn't mean that we should be ignored. We need Democrats who care about our priorities, that are willing to fight for our priorities. Just somebody saying that they're a Democrat is not good enough. You know, that's not good enough. We need people who are willing to fight because it matters. I remember Elizabeth Warren said it matters who's in the seat. It matters. And I think about if I was not in the seat, that eviction moratorium, you know, that action on the steps that we did back in August, late July, early August of 2021, that helped save millions of people who were at risk for eviction, at least helped to stave off what could have been the fate for weeks. But it wouldn't have happened if we weren't there. The way that we're working on water would not be happening if Rashida Tlaib was not there. The student loan debt, really fighting for that and pushing that. It would not happen the same if Representative Ayanna Presley wasn't there. And so I'm just saying that, you know, it really, really matters. I understand that I'm in a safe blue seat, but that does not mean that we should be ignored. The other thing is this. Black women raised the least amount of money. At least the statistics that came out a couple years ago showed that Black women raised the least amount of money in contributions to their campaigns than any other person. So we need help as well. One of the reasons you've cultivated such a fervent following is because of the thing you just mentioned, which is that you have showed up for your community. And this new memoir of yours, The Forerunner, is a testament to that. And I wanted to dive into it just by quoting the prologue in which you write, Growing up in the church, I was often reminded of the importance of the figure of the forerunner, that person who blazes a clear path where there was none before. He takes on whatever lies ahead and withstands the pains and pressures of the journey. And to understand your journey, we have to start in 1976 where you're born in St. Louis, Missouri, to a mother that's a computer analyst, a father that's a union meat cutter. But you really come of age in a suburb right outside the city called Northwoods. Yes. Every morning before school, starting around the fifth grade, your dad would sit you and your brother down to talk about responsibility, a subject every fifth grader longs to hear about right before class. <laughs> right. But really, I'm wondering, what were those conversations like? Well, like you just said, it's what every fifth grader wants to hear before they go, you know, <laughs> go to class. You know, we would try to go take out the trash or like go outside to try to get to the car before, you know, we didn't want the speech, but he made sure he would come back, come back in here, sit down. And we had to sit down at the kitchen table. It was a whole motion responsibility. He would smack his hand with the back of his other hand and tell us, you know, you have to be accountable for your actions, but responsibility, responsibility, responsibility. The only way to be a good leader is to be a good follower. He would tell us that over and over again. And the thing, we got to the point to where we were like mumbling it with, you know, ourselves. We didn't know what that meant at the time, though. He was building something up in us. Now I look back and I'm so thankful that he did that. So this is the thing, Sam. I'm an introvert. 
Look, in high school, I was voted most laid back because I didn't talk a lot. I was the quiet one. Me, I was the quiet one. You? Yes, most laid back. <laughs> you know, but even still today, I walk into a room and people be, oh, well, she, you know, she's not talking. It's not because I don't want to. It's because I'm a quiet person. When I do speak up and all of that, it's me pushing beyond myself, being uncomfortable to help, you know, to bring out a message. You know, when your dad said, what makes a good leader is someone who knows how to follow. Yeah. What do you think he meant by that? I believe what he meant is be someone who can listen, someone who can learn, someone who can accept criticism and still keep going, someone that's willing to grow. But also what he taught us with that was always be humble. Stay humble. So if you can be the one getting the shine, you could also be the one mopping the floor to bring out the shine in the floor. You could be the one taking out the trash. You lead by example, you know, but if you haven't gone through anything, then how are you able to lead? And then what kind of leader do you want to be? Take the time to learn from other leaders. Like, what kind of leader do you need to be? Like, what is it that you want to see happen in your community? And my dad was that person. Your father was... Always politically minded. Yeah. I mean, he lined the walls of your home with a photograph of Dr. King, a portrait of Jesse Jackson. He'd bring home books to teach you about black history, books about political figures like Rosa Parks, Shirley Chisholm, Fannie Lou Hammer, Marcus Garvey. And by the early 90s, your father had become the city alderman with you working on his campaigns. You said once, I would knock on doors. I would answer calls, and by the time I was a teenager, I had worked every part of a campaign. Now, most teenagers get a job mowing the lawn, right. <laughs> working at a movie theater, but you went a different route. What did those experiences at that formative time in your life, what did it teach you about the work of politics? Yeah, so, well, one is we didn't have a choice because my dad— he was running in a small municipality in Northwoods, and there was no money really to have other people help. And we really believed in dad. You know, we wanted to see dad successful. So, you know, we wanted to help. He said this is what he needed. So, you know, we just showed up. He would take us out for fast food. We would get chicken and, you know. That was your compensation. That was the compensation. Because, you know, back then, you didn't get it every single day like now people do. It sounds like you and your brother needed to form a union. I know, right? <laughs> so, but we were, you know— being able to be there for my dad was really, really important. And then as I started to get older, I started to realize that, like, he was taking attacks. Like, he was getting criticism and he was trying to help people, but everything wasn't coming back at him the same way that he was giving it out. And so then it turned into me wanting to protect him. So now I'm working on these campaign because, you know, I'm the security, you know, basically. I was dispatched on the day of the election, making sure that the people that were picking people up to take them to the polls knew where they were going, whatever he needed. And now, though, I look back. That gave me a foundation into organizing and it gave me a foundation into grassroots organizing because at grassroots, you got to do it all. You said you saw your father take criticism in stride, but that it weighed on him. Yes. What did that look like? It pissed me off a lot, let me just say. The way that I saw it as a child, it was like, he does not have to do this. He has a full-time job. It's not like that was bringing in money to keep our home stable. He had his job. So I felt like, you know, this is in the way of his happiness. My dad jumped through hoops to be able to do this particular thing, and now he's getting attacked for it. 
You know, I just felt like, why? I went for years trying to understand the why. Didn't get the why until years later when I finally ran for office over, you know, 30, 20, 30 years later. But my dad, he kept his head up. That was one thing that my dad taught us. When I say my dad, don't you hold your head down. You hold your head up, chin up, shoulders back. You know, you stand toe-to-toe with whoever comes your way. You know, you don't let anybody intimidate you, regardless of their gender, their color, you know, how much money they have. That's who my dad was. And he made sure I knew that with this dark skin, that I was beautiful and I could go toe-to-toe with anyone. I want to go to a moment of intimidation that you faced around the age of 13, 14. By that point... You had moved through middle school as this academically gifted student. And as high school rolls around, you take an admissions test for a mostly white Catholic school. What happened there? So I was really excited. It was time to go to high school and it was the thing. You know, I write about in the book watching the TV shows like Full House and movies like Grease and... You thought it would be a musical like Grease? You know, right? I thought it would be... You know, I just I just had this idea of it. And then we had high school night where the students would come from the other schools and talk about how great their schools were and all of this pride. And I thought I was walking into that because this particular school had a great cheerleading squad. I was a cheerleader. The school had a great volleyball team. I played volleyball and they had great academics and academics were my thing. So I felt like this is the fit. But when I started, when they called me to take that interest exam, um, I took it and I remember being told that I needed to come back to take the test again. And so when I arrived back at the school to take the test again, an administrator, I remember it was a man looking up at him and he looked dead at me and he said, we believe you cheated. We don't believe that you did this well on the exam on your own to paraphrase him. I had just turned 14. I couldn't believe it, but I didn't understand what was going on at the time. And I just remember thinking, I cheated? I had never cheated on a test before. Never even thought about cheating on a test before. Took the test again. And when I came out, they told me that I did even better on the test than I did the first time. And so I started out as the number one incoming freshman. And I believe that the parents, the students did not like the fact that I was only one of a few Black students, and I was the number one incoming student, and they didn't like that. And so I went through being called the N-word, isolated. No one would talk to me. The teachers would ignore me or say hurtful things to me. I opened my locker one day, and it was shaving cream all in my locker. It was just thing after thing. They would People would try to trip me in the hallway. It was just a really tough time when I thought that I was about to like embark on this beautiful new journey. When you sat with that moment just now, and you were thinking back on your teenage self taking that test, I felt like you had gone to some place that took you back in a way. It almost seemed like you could feel it all over again. Yeah, I could. So much of of what I write in the book, I can still feel. I can visualize those moments, you know. But what I was thinking about uh, when I was when I first started to tell that story is looking up and seeing this older white man looking down at me, telling me that I cheated on that test, 
and just thinking about how many other Black girls go through that. You know, how, how, what that looks like, how many more have gone through that um, and how many more will go through that? How, as a society, you know, um, are we protecting, you know, how are we protecting our our girls? Yeah, it's hard. It's uh, that young girl that looked up at that man who insisted that she was cheating, who went into that strange new high school and was bullied. That same young girl left after one semester and transferred to Cardinal Ritter High School. But by then, you write, your self-confidence and motivation was shattered. Whatever it was that had given me self-determined passion for learning had died. What did that kind of death of self feel like? A void. I used to be excited to read books and to just take in knowledge. Like, I just, I had this thirst for more knowledge. But after that situation happened, I, I didn't want to learn anymore. I didn't, I didn't want people to find out that I was smart because I didn't want to be attacked for being smart. I didn't trust that I would be safe if I did. Plus, I felt that maybe being smart was a bad thing. And then as you grow, you know, the more information that you take in and the more that you do with it, the more that you'll be attacked. And so I think I just went into the shell in myself, even though Cardinal Ritter is a school where they teach Black excellence, where they teach you that it's great to be smart and it's even greater to use it. They, you know, they really push you to be whole. So those seeds that were sown, you know, have blossomed and are continuing to blossom, you know, even now. Well, it's clear that you took that lifeline and by the end of your time in high school, got accepted into Tuskegee University. Yes. Where you plan to attend in the fall of 1994. But six weeks before the first day of classes, you found out that you were pregnant. How did you as an 18-year-old woman grapple with that experience? I didn't understand it. I took a pregnancy test just because that's what... We were told you do if you miss your period, you know, and I knew that it had been seven days and my period was regular. So I took a test. I didn't actually think that I could be pregnant. And when I saw that I was, I didn't know what to do. I wanted to make my parents proud because I felt like my parents were so, just so disappointed, you know, in me because I went from being this honor roll student to... I think I graduated with maybe a 2.5 or something like that. My parents had banked on me getting full scholarships to Howard University. They banked on me having a full scholarship to Howard University and then getting offers, you know, from from so many other schools. And I was now in a position to where, yeah, I could get into Tuskegee, but they would have to, you know, we would have to pay for it. And my parents, I didn't, they didn't have the money for that. Um, so I was, I felt like this huge disappointment. And so to add... Okay, now I'm pregnant, so either I can't go to school or I'll go to school and maybe waste their money because I would have to leave at some point to be able to have the child. And so I just, um, 
I knew that I was not in a position to be able to 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 handle that. Plus, I wasn't okay. I was not okay. I didn't love myself. I was skating by through life simply because the next day came. That's how I got through <laughs> many years. The next day just started without my help. <laughs> you wrote in the book, I went through the motions, but I was a shell of my former self. I wanted to disappear. I stopped believing that I lived past the age of 21. I was numb. Yeah. I had friends dying to gun violence all the time. I had male friends who were dying to gun violence over and over. And it was like every week somebody else was murdered. I had girlfriends who were overdosing on heroin. I had friends who were in domestic violence situations. And so I didn't... I didn't believe that I would live past 21 because I didn't see the worth of my life past that point. I had gotten into just so many things that were putting my life in danger by that time, and I didn't care about my life. What were those things? I was hanging out with people who, you know, spent their time in the streets, and there were times when, you know, being at home and, House would get shot up. You know, then I got to the point where it was like nine lives, you know, like <laughs> it was like, oh, that happened. I didn't die. Oh, and that happened. I didn't die. I didn't die this time. And then it, you know, kind of became like a game, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You said that thing earlier that um, I have to tell you, as you could probably tell, broke my heart when you said um, that each day just kind of kept coming. Yeah. And that line, I stopped believing that I lived past the age of 21. The weight of all of this, under most circumstances, would weigh someone down so much that they could not get up, that they could not move forward. And yet, you did. <laughs> and I guess I want to ask you, how the hell did you do that? Um, there were people who continued to pray for me. There were people who continued to speak life into me, even though I wasn't listening. There were people who would tell me, you deserve joy. You're going to do great things. I remember being 18, 19, 20, and uh, I speak about Aline in the book. She would always, she would just come up to me just at random times. God loves you, or you're going to do amazing things for this world. The best is yet to come. Like, she would just say these things to me. And I remember thinking, like, would you leave me alone, lady? You know, um, she, <laughs> but she was dropping these seeds. She was planting something. So that is how, you know, it was that other people were carrying me and holding me up, you know, through those times because day kept coming again, you know, eventually I started to come out of situations, but but my story shows that I would come out of situations and then something else, and then I would come out and then something else, or I would start to move and then something else. But later, I hit my rock bottom. What was that? That was after when I almost lost my life to um, 
uh, an intimate partner. And I write about it in the book. When I finally realized that I would never get away from him alive, uh, I, I just remember my parents were so upset with me because I would not leave that that person. And I was sleeping on my friend's air mattress in her living room and came home. I was sick, you know, and I just remember right after that moment, turning on the radio, just hearing that I needed to turn on the radio to this gospel station that I used to listen to, that I would listen to at work. And when I turned it on, the song was speaking directly to my situation. And I gave my life to the Lord in that moment. And then I made the decision to start going back to church. And from that moment on, I just knew that there had to be more to my life. And things really started to change for me. Hard times still came, but things at that point really, really started to change. And I started going to church hearing that, like, I was worth love and that I am a conqueror. And just hearing those things, sometimes it's the worst, like those daily affirmations. I know sometimes people are like, oh, I don't do those. Like, those those, those don't work. But they absolutely do. You know, when you're telling yourself something that you don't believe and you build yourself up, you begin to believe that the same way if somebody turns on a commercial, you may not have been thinking about a hamburger, but now all of a sudden you're thinking about a hamburger because you saw a commercial. In the same way like that, that's what really, really helped me um, to at least get started on the road to, to help. You know, I was really with you until you brought up those ads for Wendy's because they have never made me want to have a hamburger. <laughs> I didn't say Wendy's. <laughs> I was thinking White Castles. I'm sorry. I'm from St. Louis. Wait, the moment I see the White Castle ad, I just think of like the stomach ache and the pain that will follow <laughs> if, I, if I embark on that journey. It's a harrowing mission. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to follow up your very sincere answer with a White Castle joke. It's okay. <laughs> you know, in the aftermath of all of this, as you hear those words of affirmation, you have two kids, an angel and Zion. Yes. You start working as a teacher at Lighthouse Preschool, sometimes having to grapple with bouts of homelessness. You write in the book, no one at my job understood that I was unhoused, living out of a 1996 Ford Explorer, and I put on a brave face every day. When you're looking back on that period of your life, a moment where you're making progress, you're in repair, but still figuring it out, what do you see? I see that I didn't think that I would ever come out of that. I felt like I would be in this spiral over and over again where I would start to, things would start to look up and then I'd end up three steps backward and, you know, over and over this cycle. That's what I saw. I saw that I just couldn't figure out how I could get off of that wheel. And going to work every day and nobody, nobody ever suspected that I was living in my car with my kids. I would go into the bathroom, even though I would get try to get cleaned up at, you know, whatever McDonald's we passed because they had that open bathroom where you didn't need the key. And then I would go into the bathroom at work and like finish getting, you know, getting myself together. Just nobody knew. That's still the situation with so many people today in our communities 
There are people who least expect, who are unhoused. And we just, we allow it because we won't prioritize housing for all. We allow it because we allow people to be evicted from homes, even in a deadly pandemic. We allow it because we care more about beautifying our communities on the outside when there is so much darkness and ugly on the inside. What? I mean, it's as, it's as old as this country, you know, actually older, as old as time. People, people being marginalized and, and, uh, neglected, overlooked, underrepresented. And it is it is part of our society. And it's, it has been an okay part to society, you know, because white supremacy still reigns in this country. Um, white supremacy, white patriarchy still reigns in every system in this country. People living on the street should not be acceptable in these United States of America, but it is. We'll be right back after a quick break. Coming back, you were talking about how white supremacy continues to reign in this country. And yet, oddly enough... It's that same white supremacy that propelled you into this fight back in 2014. Yes. For context, at that point, you had been working as a nurse at a hospital for a few years. And on the night of Saturday, August 9th, you find yourself coming back home from a date, scrolling on Facebook, and you see something that makes you go, I need to get out of here. Walk me through that evening. So I just remember after the church service, I had a church service earlier that day. And in the afternoon, I just remember scrolling on Facebook and I saw this image of this person's body laying on the ground uncovered. Um, First, I thought it was fake. Like, I just, you know, I just, I saw it and kept going. I didn't think that it was a real photo. And I just remember later on looking on Facebook, saw it again on my timeline, looked at, looked again, saw it again, and just was like, what is happening? But I still didn't really look into it. Went on a date. I was sitting at the restaurant, eating some dessert, checked my Facebook page, because that's how interesting the date was. (laughs) (laughs) You two got married, right? (laughs) No, we did not. (laughs) Um, He really had my uh, attention. (laughs) And so I saw the image again when I opened up Facebook. And so it was like, okay, it's been like half of a day now. What is happening? So I remember that I started clicking on the images and then I, I started seeing people like out in the street Then I realized, okay, something is happening. It took me a while to realize that that had happened in St. Louis and not only in St. Louis, but also in the community that I frequented that was only six minutes from my home. And by the next day, 
people were still out there um, on the streets. So I decided I wanted to go out and be, you know, go out and see what was going on and lend a hand however I could. But I remember the next day I went into work. I told my supervisor, like, hey, this is happening on the street, in the community. We need to be out there. What can we do? I said, I want to go out there. And so she called me back and said, hey, we're going to put a crisis response van out there on the ground. You know, we want you to be the nurse on the van. We have a doctor. We have therapists. We want you to be the nurse. Go out there. So from that day, we were out and we were there for five weeks. But also from that day, so much has been written about Ferguson. Yes. There's been a lot of discussion around the protests and all that came after. But in the intervening eight years, what do you wish people understood about the movement that perhaps they don't understand? We were mostly people who did not know each other before the protests. Most of us met out there on the streets. So we showed up because we were outraged folks have called it, oh, it was reactionary. Well, it absolutely was. You know, we were angry. We spent more than 400 days, 400 consecutive days out there on the streets. Rain, sleet, hell, snow. Hell no, we won't go. And those folks became my family. We watched each other get brutalized by the police, get arrested. I remember going, there was a nearby subway um, sandwich shop by where um, we would protest a lot. We would go in there and buy a sub sandwich and cut it up and give it out to people so that we could eat because we didn't have money. People have said, oh, well, they had all of this money. There's all of this talk about us not protesting the right way, that we were a leaderless movement when we were actually leaderful. We were a leaderful movement because you couldn't take out one of us and then and then the whole movement falls apart. Um, We lost lives out there. There are protesters who are no longer here. We, we lift them up, their memories. We banded together. We St. Louis was a, a very divided place. We lived in our silos, you know, but out there on the ground, our Palestinian community showed up for us and they did not have to. So we banded together. Our Jewish community showed up when they did not have to. We banded together. Our Latino community showed up. And I say Latino because people say, please don't say Latinx. <laughs> That's the only reason why I said it, because I keep getting attacked for that. So, you know. Can I say... As part of the Latino community, we thank you. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) Um, uh, But, but, you know, we had so many folks out on the streets with us that did not have to show up for us. And so we banded together and had this, just formed this community. And we are still such a great community to this day. We still organize together. Ferguson Frontline, we just stood how we stood. And... um, Still today, there are Ferguson frontline protesters who most people will never know their names. Some of them, us, never received therapy for what we went through. Nobody offered us any type of health care services or anything like that on the ground. Many lost jobs. Some lost career choices because of their connections to the protests. Some of us were evicted from homes because of the protests. So I just want people to know that it's not what they saw and not what they hear in the media. You know, in those 400 days of protesting, there's one scene that I'm pretty sure people are not aware of. It comes in the spring of 2015 as Ferguson activists are obviously 
fatigued and worn down by this fight. To boost morale, you reach out to Dr. Angela Davis to come to Ferguson and speak. She agrees, and I just want to sit with that scene as Davis enters the auditorium at Cardinal Ritter High School. Could you read that passage from the book? Yeah. First of all, I couldn't believe that she was, <laughs> that she agreed to do this um, for us. But so she said, this movement is worldwide. She said she continued, for me as well as for people throughout the world, the very mention of Ferguson evokes struggle, perseverance, courage, and a collective vision of the future. I want to thank you, Ferguson activists, who refused, who refused to put down the torch of struggle, who made Ferguson a worldwide symbol of resistance, and who did this at a time when we were urged to search for easy solutions, for fast answers, for formulated resolutions. Ferguson protesters said, no, we will continue to make the issue of violence against Black communities visible. We will not accept a simplistic answer. We will not allow this issue to be buried in the graveyard that has not only claimed Black lives, but also the struggles to defend those lives. So thank you for not giving up, for not going home, for staking our claim to freedom on the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, with such great power that Ferguson has become synonymous with progressive protests from Palestine to South Africa and indeed all over the world. But when Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, the movement refused to disband. Even when the police attacked, the movement refused to disband, even when some people's rage led them to respond in ways that may have been counterproductive and that almost always happens. The movement still refused to disband. When people tried to discredit the protesters, the movement refused to disband, even when people asked, where are the leaders? Where are the leaders? The movement said, we are the leaders. <laughs> I love Martin. I deeply love Malcolm, but this is the 21st century, and we have learned that leadership is not a male prerogative. I know many of the brothers in this hall today know that women have always done the work, so women should also be in the leadership. When Black women stand up, as they did during the Montgomery bus boycott, as they did during the Black liberation era, earth-shaking changes can occur, she ended. You know, I'm sitting here listening to you read that section. After everything we've talked about, I was thinking about Angela Davis at the same high school that you attended, that place where your passion and self-confidence died as a kid. I don't know, in that moment, 20 years later, did you feel some part of yourself being reborn? Absolutely. And vindicated I remember being so proud and just holding my arms up in the air. You know, it was full circle. I didn't feel like I had a voice when I went to the school, but now standing there, I knew I had a voice. But because Ferguson protesters had been, you know, just dogged out, 
for her to stand there and say that we were a movement, that we, you know, for her to say that we were leaders. It's one thing for folks that never touched movement, that never had to run from dogs that were unleashed, never had to endure being arrested for fighting for civil rights and fighting to save, you know, our lives. It's one thing for them to say it, but, you know, to say all of these horrible things about us, but for her to validate us in the way that she did, it reinvigorated us. It reminded us of the mission, and it it told us in that moment that we are a part of history and that we were on the right side of it. Well, on the heels of that speech, (laughs) you run for office in 2016. Yes. You don't win. You run for office in 2018. You don't win. Remarkably, you manage to run another campaign in 2020 where you win and unseat Lacey Clay, whose family had held the seat for over 50 years in Missouri. Now you're here in 2022, up for re-election, with this new bill you've just introduced called the Helping Families Heal Act. What is that? When I was running, Michael Brown's mother came to me and said, hey, we have this bill that we're working on to help families, and we want to know that if you get elected, if you would introduce this bill. And I was absolutely interested to do that, but I wasn't elected. That was around the 2018 election. Fast forward to now, now that we are in the position to be able to push this bill through, we worked with Michael Brown's mom, Leslie McSpadden, to build this bill. This bill is for mental health services for those who are victims or the family members, loved ones of victims of police violence. Because there is no government-funded program that will directly give resources or mental health services to families that have endured that type of violence, because police violence is still violence. It will allocate $100 million dollars $50 million to put for like behavioral health centers to be able to give mental health resources to those family members and loved ones who need it. But then another $50 million for the Department of Education to implement in schools so that students who lost someone to um, police violence, that they can have help right in the school system. When it comes to this bill, but really any bill where you're fighting for issues that you care about, Medicare for all, canceling student debt, increasing the minimum wage, the housing crisis. How do you turn what is theoretical to your colleagues and make it as real to them as it is to you? If it's an issue that where I have lived experience, then I speak to it from that lived experience. I speak to my colleagues just that way. I think back to the eviction moratorium action that we took on the steps that I spoke about earlier. I remember doing a lot of media out there on those steps. And people would come up to me, even my colleagues later, some of them came up to me and said, I didn't know that that's what happens when you get evicted. Like, I just didn't know. Or I didn't know that's what happens when you live on the street. I didn't know that that's what happens when you go to a food pantry. You can only go, some food pantries only let you come once a month. When those that are directly impacted are at the table, That is how the transformative change is able to happen when we tell those stories so that other people are accountable. Now that you've heard the message, now you are accountable. I speak to the situation as directly as I can. That's the one thing about it. I don't waver on that. 
Like, I'm not going to stop doing that. I know that people have said to me, are you going to keep, you know, pushing this issue? Are you, you know, or that's going to hurt the party or that may hurt this person's seat. I don't want to hurt someone's seat because we need all the Democrats we can in in Congress right now. We need to keep the House and we need to keep the Senate. Absolutely. But we got to learn to be able to do both. We can't neglect my community. I can't continue to let people die in my community to be able to save somebody's seat. We need to work on messaging. If you need to hire more people to work on messaging, then do that. Like, let's raise money for that. But what will not happen is my community gets to be pushed to the side. My folks get to continue to die when my community continues to be number one or number two for homicides in this country over and over again. At least this time we move down to number two for police murder year after year after year. When my community continues to be number one for the murder of children year after year, and you tell me that I need to taper down, keep that quiet. This goes for anyone. This is not something that's just for my colleagues. And this is for anyone who feels that I need to shut up, fix the problem, and I can. Well, forward than this tape. <laughs> I think part of what you're talking about is this term you developed called politivism, mm -hmm. which is part politician, part activist, someone who hears what the people need on the ground and uses that to inform legislation. But you alluded to colleagues of yours criticizing this approach. One of them is named Karen Bass from California. She's a longtime civil rights activist and the head of the CBC. She said, it is the role of an activist to push us as far as they can push us. It is our role to legislate, and that is a different role. We are very committed to making a difference, and that is different than making a point. You can either make a point or you can make a difference. Do you think she's right? I love and respect Karen Bass. That's, she's my colleague. She's an OG in Congress. So I absolutely, you know, have much respect for her. But we have two different views. And I think that I've proven that you can do both. People told us we could not win an eviction moratorium staying in place, but we did get that to happen. We've been able to bring home over a billion dollars to our community in less than two years. We have passed more than 25 pieces of legislation through the U.S. House of Representatives. And we have also had legislation signed into law by the president of the United States. We've done that as the freshmen. So you can absolutely do both. It's a matter of um, someone being both. And that I am. And I'm not willing to take off the hat of the activists to be in Congress. The people of St. Louis elected me being the activist going into politics. And that is who I will be in this seat because St. Louis and I rise. And it is uh, St. Louis that I want to end on. You had this quote which was born out of those two years in Ferguson, where you said, the truth is the St. Louis I grew up in oftentimes feels very disconnected. Sometimes it was as if our communities existed in silos, segregated by race, religion, ethnicity, or class. The protests brought us out of our homes, our neighborhoods, our places of worship, and gave us an opportunity to not only come to know one another's pain, but to imagine what a future of collective liberation could look like. Now that we are seven years removed from that moment, as we enter this midterm election, do you think we're moving towards that collective liberation 
Do you think in 2022 and in the years ahead, that's even possible? Possible? Yes. Are we moving in the right direction? No. My third day in Congress, there was an insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. Folks marched in the street in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others. But then that very next year in 2021, 2021 saw the highest number of police killings since police killings started to be recorded. There were only 15 days in the year where the police did not kill someone. Right now, we have people who believe that the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris was stolen, who have won their primaries in their communities, who are heading to a general election, some of whom could possibly win those seats. When we look at how we're organizing collectively, yes, we're fighting, and I think that we're working together, but when white supremacy has made the decision that we are going to try to come at this in every way we can right now in 2022, I believe that we're going the other way. We could go the other way if we don't fight. So we need fighters. We need fighters that's willing to call a thing a thing. We need those folks seated not only in Congress, our school boards, our city councils, our our county government. We need folks that's willing to fight. So that's what my hope is going into this next term, is that we don't tiptoe around these issues that we fight, but also believing that folk will show up and use the power of their voices in their votes. Because what we are facing is a national ban on abortion, What we're facing is a possible national ban on contraception. We could be facing a national ban possibly on marriage equality. And that's just the beginning. We could be allowing the insurrection to get sworn into Congress if we don't show up and use our voices to vote. People may say, well, my vote does not count. Well, boo, I'm in Congress because the vote counts. That's the only reason I made it is because your vote does count. So, boo, show up. Take your friends, take your cousins, show up. This is the moment because our democracy is at stake. You said it, Sam, how fragile this democracy is. That's what it is. It's fragile at this point. So we need folk to show up because your life, your legacy right now is at stake. Well, all I can say in this moment is uh, thank you for showing up as you have in these last two years in Congress in this conversation with me and uh, in the years ahead. Thank you, Sam. Congresswoman Cori Bush, it has been an honor. Thank you. I appreciate you. We all right? That was a lot, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) That was a lot.
And that's our show. Special thanks to Jessica Purcell and Sarah New at Penguin Random House, Julia Weaver at iHeart, and of course, Congresswoman Cori Bush. To purchase her latest book, The Forerunner, be sure to visit our website at talkeasypod.com. There you'll find our back catalog of over 300 episodes. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend our talks with Stacey Abrams, Sarah Nelson, Representative Ilhan Omar, Beto O'Rourke, Roxanne Gay, Gloria Steinem, and Noam Chomsky. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to support our show by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, reviewing the program on Spotify, Apple Podcasts is still the best way for new listeners to find the show. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was engineered by Bahid Frazier at iHeartMedia in New York City. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs by Maria Alvarez and Joe Martinez. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliore, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with actor Eddie Redmayne. Until then, stay safe. And so long.